Hello, this is Lindsay Morgan at the Institute on Global Conflict and Cooperation, a University of California think tank that addresses global challenges to peace and prosperity through rigorous, policy-relevant research, training, and engagement. The past several years have seen heightened tensions around the globe, with some wondering if war between the U.S. and China is inevitable. Will competition lead to conflict? What determines whether countries go to war or not? We're here today to talk with Rob Traeger about the role politics play in conflict, and in particular, domestic politics. Rob is an associate professor in the political science department at UCLA and an affiliated researcher here at IGCC. He's the author of the forthcoming book, The Suffragist Peace with Jocelyn Barnhart, and he's done so much interesting research, it's hard to know where to start. Rob, thanks for being with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm glad to be here. I thought you were going to, I thought your first question was going to be, what makes war happen? And, and full stop. And I, that's going to be a, a long answer, uh, at the very least. <laughs> we will get to the bottom of that in, in the next half hour. So whether countries go to war depends on lots of things, one of which is the domestic politics within countries. We assume that decisions are made by well-informed groups of people after long periods of careful deliberation. And in some of your recent work, you're looking at the role of individual leaders and their experiences, their personalities, their beliefs. What role do individual leaders play in steering countries towards or away from war? So you might find a correlation between, let's say, older leaders and going to war. And it turns out there is a correlation like that. Leaders that go to war are likely to be older. But there's a, there's a thing, there's a problem there because you know, maybe when things look uncertain, when a voting public feels like maybe there's gonna be a war, maybe they, they don't wanna vote for a young person in that case. And if that, that's true, then it's not that being an old person, you know, you have this image of like a cantankerous old person that's like, you know, getting easily angry or something and, and is causing wars, but that wouldn't be, that wouldn't be right. And so, you know, if you think about like, you know, Winston Churchill, that was a case where he, he wasn't in office and then this war happened. And it's pretty clear that people thought that's the person to lead us through this war. But nevertheless, they vote him out of office at the end of the war because they think that he's not the person to lead them through the peace. And as a, as a matter of fact, they vote in a much younger person. Oh, interesting. It's really hard to figure out what the effect of an individual is because you don't know if that individual is just there because they're brought in by circumstance. You know, people say, well, you know, how are male and female leaders different, for instance? But you don't know, maybe, maybe women come to power in certain contexts. Maybe they're contexts where things look more dangerous. Maybe they're contexts where things are less dangerous. You don't know the answer. So I think many uh, have assumed that here in the United States, our former president, Donald Trump, was and maybe still is more prone to violence, more prone to instigating international conflict. And conversely, I think the general assumption now would be that President Biden would be much less inclined towards international conflict. 
do you think that those assumptions are true? And what about these two individual people would make them more or, or less likely um, to be aggressive, antagonistic, et cetera? We do find looking cross-nationally, right-wing parties are a bit more war-prone than on the left. But when you look at polling data in the United States, uh, Republicans are much more hawkish than Democrats are. So you do see that. On the other hand, when a leader is in office, there are other things that constrain them. So in other research, we show that if there's a Republican in office that decides to go to war, the Republican has a higher bar in terms of having to prove the worth of this conflict to the American people than a Democrat who does the same thing. But for a Democrat, a Democratic president in office has the, has the opposite problem. So a Democratic president in office that stays out of a conflict, particularly if they're criticized by the opposition party, the Republicans, people are suspicious of that Democrat. Maybe they are not hawkish enough. So the parties, they kind of have opposite branding problems and they have opposite signaling problems to the American people. And the result of that is that they're maybe not as different once they get into office as you might expect them to be. A paper that you published in 2019 lists some traits that might make leaders more or less likely to engage in conflict. And these are so interesting. So things like the degree to which they, they tolerate risk, how ambitious they are, how delusional they are, if they had a troubled childhood, if they served in the military or not, you know, their, their perception of danger posed by the other country, their age, as you mentioned. Do some traits matter more than others? We know that age looks like it is quite important. We know that being on the right side of the spectrum looks like it's important. It's really hard to figure out. How do leaders form beliefs about what to expect in the international system? And I guess related to that, in an age of uh, really relentless social media, to what extent is that influencing how these beliefs are formed? People have never, when they are making their decisions about who to vote for, about what policies they think are right, they've never had tons and tons of information. They don't go out and seek tons and tons of information. If you take basically anybody off the street and you kind of interview them, to find out what they know about the issues of the day, they don't know that much in terms of the things that would be the basis of a decision. But the interesting thing is that they know who to turn to and what institutions to turn to, what newspapers to turn to that reflect their view of the world. That now in the world of social media, the, the signals are changing. The information environment is changing, right? People are getting their signals, their information about politics in a different way. And I think that because it's so new, they don't yet know how to weight it. They don't know if they see a post on Facebook, it's not like seeing an editorial from the New York Times. Somebody who sees an editorial from the New York Times either knows, okay, I probably disagree or I probably agree. Somebody who sees a post on Facebook from who knows where doesn't have that that same understanding. And so those things are evolving and changing and people are, are seeking out institutions that have their own agendas. And I think they haven't yet quite been able as a kind of population 
to converge on the signals or signalers uh, that would mean that if they were that educated about a lot of specifics, they would hold the same views. But I think that that will change. That's my view. It's not one that is informed by huge amounts of research. That's just based on what's happened in the past and what I therefore think will happen in the future. So I think that right now it's, you know, people are kind of at sea in terms of trying to construct a, a reality. But I think that there's a, let's say, a reasonable chance that they will converge eventually on understanding, okay, who can I trust in this space? And then they won't be as susceptible to manipulation as maybe they are right now. Matt Kronig, who is an IGCC alum, who you probably know, um, who's now at, at Georgetown, I did an interview with him recently, and he was talking about competition between the U.S. and China and, and Russia. And he said that Russia and China, especially China, pose threats to a broad range of U.S. interests. And uh, he listed a number of things that China is doing that is aggressive behavior. And he said, what we need to do, what we want to do is to change the mind of China's leaders. Can leaders' minds be changed? First of all, it's very hard to change anybody's mind. Matthew Kronig probably has in mind the ways that uh, we can sort of structure incentives to change minds. And I, I do think that, that people respond uh, to, to incentives. I'm not sure that really counts as changing minds. You may, if you're the United States for a time, deter China from behaving aggressively towards Taiwan. But that doesn't mean that China is giving up on Taiwan. It doesn't mean that its mind has changed. It doesn't mean that when circumstances are different, that it isn't going to change its policy. If what we're asking is, can China, China be convinced to decide that Taiwan reunification, full reunification with Taiwan is not important to China? I have my doubts. I have very, very strong doubts about that one. It's interesting to think about the way that states behave and the degree to which it's similar or not to how individual people behave. I mean, we all have a certain intuitive sense about this kind of stuff, about how, you know, how we form opinions and perceptions about things and degree to which they are changeable or not. And it sounds like there is some similarity then between how states behave, that if there are deeply valued interests or views that just like with people, they're, they're not particularly amenable to change, but they respond to constraints and incentives just like we do. Absolutely. Well, you know, again, again, to your question, it reminds me of a, a good friend of mine, uh, sort of classic Oxford history don in reference to academic departments. He used to say, where there is death, there is hope. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so some, sometimes that's what it takes for change. So whether countries go to war, whether countries engage in conflict also depends on the public mood. I was thinking about the recent um, 20th anniversary of 9-11. And after the collective trauma of that attack, you know, Americans in large numbers felt threatened. There was certainly a, a very supportive mood in this country in terms of violent retaliation. Now, democracies are often thought to go to war less than non-democracies. Uh, the idea being that 
the institutional checks and balances can hold leaders accountable in a way that might not be possible in authoritarian countries. But you have argued in some super interesting research uh, that democratic institutions themselves don't ensure peace, that there's something else going on, and that who votes in democracies matters quite a lot. Can you talk a little bit about this? Whose vote matters? I think that uh, everyone's vote matters. And I I think that the culture of the place, there's uh, some research, some done by me, some done by others that talks about different cultures or different places and how uh, democratic publics can be very different. And so if we want peace, it's not just about the institutions of democracy, it's about the culture of the place and, and who's voting. But the, the work that, that I've been doing uh, suggests that uh, a really big deal, a really, really big deal, uh, when we talk about the democratic peace, is the enfranchisement of women, when half of the world's population suddenly uh, started to have a say in political life about 100 years ago, And I think that that's a lot of what the democratic peace is about. Around the time when there were these democratic revolutions in the United States and France and subsequent revolutions, uh, democratizing revolutions uh, through the 19th century, all in this time period, you get these intellectuals who are talking about the potential of a democratic peace. And that is the great hope, you know, Kant and Montesquieu and Paine and others. And then you get the 19th century. And the the thing is, in the 19th century, guess what democracies are not? They're not peaceful. Not only are they not peaceful, when you look at these conflicts, the Crimean War and colonial conflicts, Spanish-American War, a variety of these conflicts, it really looks like these male voting publics are not just acquiescing in war, they're actually pushing their leaders into these conflicts. In many cases, the leaders are, are, are the ones that are trying to hold back the public rather than the reverse. You know, so you get these liberals that have this faith in democracy and faith in democracy to bring peace. And Each time a conflict happens, you know, democracy over the 19th century is being gradually extended. More and more people are able to to vote. Each time there's a conflict, there's the thinking that, well, maybe it's because not enough people could vote. You know, only the rich could vote. Only this fraction of the electorate could vote. And so maybe once we extend it to more of the people that are actually going to be fighting the wars, then that will that will have this effect that we're expecting and and we'll get democracies not wanting more. And each time suffrage is extended to more of the male electorate, they're still pushing their leaders into war. When democracies seem to be getting peaceful, it's really when women are brought in. There are on average differences between men and women in terms of their support for the use of force And it is true across time and it is true across place. And so in that sense, it's maybe to be expected that we see this change when women come into the electorate. When I look back at the 20th century, I think of it as a violent century. I know that it was even more violent before that. I wouldn't necessarily associate the 20th century with peace, 
But what you're saying is that it, it, it was less violent and that the driving force is women who are voting. And we see that even in the case of the U.S. Is that right? It's less violent in some places or between some countries. And it's particularly less violent between uh, suffrage democracies. That's where it's less violent. But, you know, Hitler overthrew the democracy in Germany. In a way, it's, um, it's not all a rosy story. There's a book uh, by a British historian called Guilty Women, which follows on uh, a famous book called Guilty Men about the Chamberlain peace policy and appeasement of, of Hitler. But the argument of guilty women is that the women in Britain had a lot to do with enabling Chamberlain's peace policy. There was a big divide. So we can go back to the very earliest polls, political representative political opinion polls that were conducted anywhere and see in Britain around that time that there was a big gap in support for Chamberlain between men and women. It seems to have had a lot to do with the, the Chamberlain's um, peace policy. And in fact, there's a group called Mass Opinion that goes around and basically they're a bunch of sociologists that go around and they try to talk to lots and lots of people on the, on the street. And um, can I say something just slightly off color on, on the podcast? Yes. I'm allowed to. Okay, good. I'm just checking. <laughs> no FCC regulation. It's going to come after. No. Okay. So this group of sociologists summarizing their own results, they said that the general opinion of women was Churchill did his best. He's a good chap. And the general opinion of men was, fuck Hitler. We should have resisted him long ago. You know, and there were people at the time, the famous diplomat Harold Nicholson has this thing, which is, to be honest, it's hard to read because it's sort of a, well, he goes to a women's organization and taught a political women's political organization and talks to them, blames them, in effect, for a, the appeasement of, of Hitler. It's hard to read in, in many ways uh, because of the tone that he takes. But there was, it seems that there was this gender divide in, in support for appeasement. This makes a broader point, which gets back to your question. Because if you see one country that is a suffrage democracy, it's not as interested in going to war, doesn't want to go to war. There's a question, can another country that doesn't feel that way, that's not a suffrage democracy, can it in, in some sense take advantage of that country. And first of all, I, as I said before, it's not that it, it's not that women are, are pacifists and they certainly, large majorities will vote in, in self-defense, large majorities have supported lots of wars. So it's not that they're easily taken advantage of or, or anything like that. But there may be some effect there when you have one country that doesn't want to go to war and one country that's willing to take advantage of that. And that arguably is what happened with, with Chamberlain's policy. And so in order to get peace more broadly, it's not enough to have just a smattering of suffrage democracies. You really need suffrage democracies on both sides of any potential conflict for you to, to see a real reduction uh, in, or to be sure anyway, that you're gonna see a reduction in the amount of conflict. 
So interesting. You mentioned that that culture um, can also shape whether countries go to war, whether they're more prone to war than other cultures. And you've written a paper called Cultures of Concession and Conflict. You know, I think a lot about U.S. culture. I puzzle a lot about why we are, we seem to be an outlier in so many ways uh, relative to our peers. I'm curious about your thoughts about whether U.S. culture is more prone to be aggressive on the international stage than, say, um, our friends in Europe. And that, so that's one question. And then what is it about our culture? I mean, what are these traits, um, cultural traits, that might make that statement true? Yeah, it's funny you ask that because I had always thought that the answer to that was yes. That, that had been my default. You know, it seemed to me that uh, when you sort of look at the importance in the culture of sort of peace movements, you know, giving up nuclear weapons and other, form, other sorts of peace movements, uh, they were they had a bigger place in the culture elsewhere vis-a-vis the United States. And, and there are these strains uh, that people have written about in, in American culture uh, that are, you know, attached to obviously the firearms and uh, that are militaristic. Not that those don't exist in, in many other cultures too. But so I tend to, to think of American culture as tending towards militarism. But in some of these experiments, we found the opposite in a restricted sense. We haven't looked at everything, but in, in a very interesting way, we, we found the opposite. So what we did is we asked people in a bunch of countries about an international negotiation. And we asked them, you know, they were basically dividing up shares of some resource with a rival. And we asked them, would they be happy if their country got 10%, 20%, 30%, 40%, 50%, 90%, 100%, whatever. Would you be happy about that? And we found these really striking cultural differences. In the United States, people really wanted the 50-50 outcome. They, that's what they really wanted. They wanted 50-50. They, had, they have a strong norm of fairness here. And they were really unhappy with the 40, getting 40, 60, they didn't like it. You know, they were probably willing to fight about that. <laughs> uh, on the other hand, getting 50 was better than getting 100% on average. Much better, much better than getting 100%. Well, guess what? In some other places, in Egypt, for instance, where we did a survey, they don't feel that way. Getting 100% is way better than, than getting 50%. They're not as willing to compromise. And we tried to figure out, you know, why is this? Is it because the Egyptians think that they're facing Israel as opposed to some other country? Is it something about the history of countries that they could have conflicts with? And so we did follow-up experiments to, to try to account for this. And we found that no, none of these things, not, not the relative power of the countries, uh, not the nature of the resource that's being disputed, uh, not the not the specific history with a country who was an adversary. None of these things drove it. It seemed to be something else. And so we started then to look at batteries of questions that get at psychology and, and culture of, of individuals. And then what we found uh, was that there appear to be uh, some groups of individuals, both in the United States and in Egypt that 
are the ones who don't like to compromise. And they are ones that have a more kind of traditional mindset, if you will. So there's a strong correlation between beliefs, for instance, in gender rights and willingness to compromise. It was a total surprise to me, but that exists, extremely strong correlation that exists between both United States and Egyptian populations. There seem to be similar sorts of folks, at least to a degree, in both places. It's just that the proportion of those folks uh, in the overall population seemed to be a bit different. There were more people who looked more like uh, what we sometimes call um, traditionalists or people from traditional societies in Egypt uh, than there were in the United States. I don't really want to use the term exactly uh, because I'm, I'm just not sure that it's that it's a good one and, and free from wrong sorts of baggage. But nevertheless, uh, it's it's not too bad, it, it seems like, in, in sort of describing this mix of traits that correlates with being unwilling to compromise internationally. You've also written about blind spots in the United States where we assume that the rest of the world thinks or acts like we do, and that can lead to missteps. Um, and conflict. What do you think are our biggest blind spots right now? We have so many, so many to choose. Where to start? Where to start? Yeah. Americans think that America is perceived in the world as a force for good. And in many places, that isn't true. A few years ago, there was a poll done of people in Morocco. This was more than a little more than a decade ago. And the poll asked, do you think that the United States is going to invade Morocco? And I used to like to ask my students this question, you know, what percentage of Moroccans do you think thought that the United States was going to, going to invade? Oh, you know, I get answers like 2%, 1%, you know, some of them, they would think that I was doing something funny. I was talking about it because it was surprising and they would say 20%. The true answer was something like 70%. 70% of Moroccans thought that the United States was going to invade Morocco. And the students would say, well, you know, what? what's going on? Why would they have this crazy idea? Well, there's a reason why they had that crazy idea. And the reason was that at the time, there was a lot of press coverage about these so-called foreign Islamist fighters that had left their country and gone to fight in Iraq and other places against Americans. Many of these foreign fighters were coming from Morocco. And basically, the Moroccans, the Moroccan people, they thought, well, a lot of these foreign fighters, these Islamists are coming from Morocco. The United States invades places where there are Islamists. So they're going to invade our country. They're probably going to invade our country. But it just shows you the gulf between perception of America around the world and the way and the American self, self-perception. I want to ask you one last question. What is the research for? What can the research do to make the world better? Uh, which always sounds a little bit trite, but I think that's what we're trying to do. And so that's one question. And then the other question is, how do you personally just grapple with, you know, the stuff that you're studying what it implies about the future, what it implies about the country. How do you grapple with that personally? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I, I actually think that, that in the field of political science, there is 
almost a, a suspicion of too much do-gooderism. We, we worry if we, if we get a, an application to graduate school and, and the, on the application and the statement of uh, purpose, it says, you know, I wanna solve world peace and that sort of thing. But I think you're right that many of us are ultimately motivated by that idea that we can make the world better and that's what we wanna do. And I do think that and maybe you were suggesting, <laughs> I, think, I think I agree that there was, there's maybe a, shall we say a tenuous connection between the things that are happening in academia and the things that are happening out there in the policy world. In some ways that's been necessary because the world is so hard, the social world is so hard to understand that we, we really didn't have a lot of the answers, you know, or, or the answers we had turned out subsequently to, to get reversed. You know, the Cold War was, was such a terrifying moment that it really focused attention. And there was then a tighter connection between the policy worlds and the academic worlds. And, you know, people who were professors like Henry Kissinger ended up in high office, you know, just speaking personally, since, since you asked, I have been worried lately. <laughs> I guess I could say I, I've been having anxiety about some of the effects of these technologies. Uh, things like bioengineering, the spread of DNA printing, the, some of the effects of lethal autonomous weapons. You know, as these technologies spread, if there isn't a, a regime in place to prevent it, I think there's a possibility that it really changes the political equilibrium in, in some parts of the world. So for me, that's been the place where I've decided that I need to become more directly involved in sh trying to shape uh, some, some policy processes. There was this nuclear moment, you invented nuclear weapons. Lots of people around the world, lots of well-known serious people from Winston Churchill to all kinds of philosophers and physicists and other leaders thought that we needed very significant governance solutions. You know, we need to really think about how we were gonna deal with this new world so that we literally survived. You know, the philosopher Bertrand Russell wrote a book, Will Man Survive? Yeah, that's what they were thinking about. You know, and I think that we had the idea in the beginning of the nuclear period, we had the idea that if we can just deal with this technology, the nuclear technology, then everything's gonna be great. What I think we're coming to realize is that it, it wasn't really this one hurdle to be overcome the nuclear stuff. It was kind of the early days of a new era where we're just gonna be inventing transformative technology after transformative technology that have enormous potential to improve our lives, but also to do enormous harm. And those technologies are diffusing to more and more people. And so I think that that, is, that, that should worry us all. The fact that we, are, we have been unable to take the sorts of regulatory measures that we would need to to deal with things like COVID and climate change. We have been unable to do it. And now we're being called on to take what in some cases will be prospective measures uh, to, to guarantee our safety against what's coming. And it is not going to be easy. 
Rob Traeger, thank you so much for being with us today. I could interview you for hours. All of the research that you and your colleagues are doing is important and so interesting. So thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Lindsay. Really, it was a, it was a pleasure and um, look forward to, to next time. I'm Lindsay Morgan. Thanks for being with us at IGCC and have a great week.